1: I have completely lost track of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam today, and as usual, so extremely excited to hear, uh, to let you guys hear this conversation that I had with uh, a, a lovely friend of mine. I think I can call her a friend now. We've done a couple of episodes together, uh, Rena Rosner, who, if you're a longtime listener, you may remember. A few years back she wrote a book called The Sisters of the Winterwood and I did an episode with her and Naomi Novik and Lainey Taylor. All together we did a uh, kind of a fairy tale retelling panel at BookCon uh, Book Con or Book Expo America a couple years ago. Rena has a new book out called The Light of the Midnight Stars and it is fabulous. It's another eh, kind of a, a fairy tale retelling of a uh, re- fairy tale reimagining maybe that would be a good way to say it but uh, this conversation is a delightful dive into how she put together this book and the three main characters who are sisters and, and how she separated them in her mind and, and in the book and how they're so different but their everything is is connected and um it's just a very fun conversation. Rena lives in Israel, and uh, when we were talking, you'll notice about halfway through, my audio gets a little m- more distorted, um, a little less high quality. Uh, I actually lost internet because of our spanning across the globe connection, and so that's that's why you'll hear a, a subtle change. But uh, Rena is in the the literary world. She is a literary agent so she's very familiar with the publishing world And we talk a little bit about the difference between being an author and being a literary agent um and because she's a pro she kept the recording going so nothing was lost when uh, my internet gave out but that's why you'll hear a, a subtle change there um but yeah it was just a really wonderful conversation if you are a fan of fairy tales and fairy tale retellings i implore you to go borrow download buy Whatever you want to do, get her new book, The Light of the Midnight Stars, and The Sisters of the Winter Wood, because they are both fabulous reads. Uh, But I'm not going to keep you any longer. If you want to get a hold of us, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds, or just shoot us an email, professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. And that is all the housekeeping. I'm going to let you get to this lovely conversation with Rena Rosner on the Professional Book Nerds podcast.
0: You no, know, I just like all you want is that book two is like somewhat close to as good as book one was. That was all I needed, and it's gotten that and more, and so that's been really gratifying.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's ju- well, I, I started the recording before just so I can always like I can yeah. always edit around stuff, um, and I'll do like a introduction to who you are yeah, and all that I, fun stuff. But do you want to start? We can start officially. Oh yeah. No, I want. was just gonna say like, do you want to just kind of introduce the light of the midnight stars to our listeners because I am in love with it much just as I was with Sisters of the Winter Wood. And, and so you saying, you know, you want it to be like just as good as the first one. It is uh, absolutely just as good, if not better, which isn't a negative to the first book because they're both phenomenal. So do you want to kind of introduce the book to our listeners and kind of jump off from there?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, The Light of the Midnight Stars is also a fairy tale retelling. It's a retelling of the story Um, Boys with Golden Stars, which is a Romanian fairy tale um, from Andrew Lang's Violet Fairy Book. That was at least where I was introduced to it from. And in the process of writing it, it fell down a lot of different rabbit holes. (laughs) And so um, it's also uh, historical fiction, historical fantasy, I would say, um, about um, a specific time and place, which in this case is um, Hungarian Empire, which now Slovakia. Um, and it's based on um, the story of a very real person who existed named Rabbi Isaac, Isaac or Tir, from Tirnava, mm-hmm. which is the town in Slovakia now, um, still exists. And his three daughters who have a sort of legacy of magic in their bones um, that they can sort of trace back to the time of King Solomon. And what happens when a horrible tragedy befalls their family and they're forced to sort of flee and remake themselves and remake their magic too? Um School Library Journal um, gave it a starred review last week and mm-hmm. they had the greatest line. It was like a story about dragon riding rabbis and their fire-breathing daughters. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just going to steal that and use that everywhere. Cause like, isn't that the greatest line ever? <laughs>
1: like, Oh my God. That's perfect. That's wow. Right? Are they writing the publicity for you? That's beautiful. <laughs>
0: I'm just going to use that. <laughs>
1: so, um, yes,
0: it is about dragon riding rabbis and their fire breathing daughters.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. And I also <laughs> want to say one thing that, that I noticed for people who read your first book, Sisters of the Winter Wood, two sisters. Now we've got three sisters. You know, you have to write a True. book next about four sisters. Like you have to do that. <laughs> you told just hold yourself.
0: <laughs> it's, an op- it's an option. There is a book in the works, but um, nobody's bought it yet. So we'll see.
1: Mm -hmm. um speaking of the the three different the three sisters in this book they all have very different voices and personalities and of course they're different ages so you know the different um views on life and also the the structure of the magic that they can perform is very different as well did you find challenges in writing these three extremely unique voices
0: Yes and no. Like on the one hand, I knew from the get go that it was going to be done this way. It's sort of the way I like writing. Um, mm-hmm. Every book I've written, like Sisters in the Winter Wood, was two voices. Um, mm-hmm. Other books before that, that never saw the light of day and may never see the light of day, also were written in multiple voices. It's kind of, I guess, just like how my brain thinks um, or even just like multiple time periods, like present and then flashbacks of the past, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to sort of bring in all these different perspectives. Um in, in order to tell a story, it's how I like to tell a story, but, uh, there were challenges, um, but, but they weren't difficult challenges. It was just like, how do I go about this? And it took a while to find each voice. Um, I would say that the easiest voice for me to write was Levana because she is very much, I think for people familiar with Sisters of the Winter Winterwood, she's a lot like Leia, you know, mm. she's flighty and she falls, she's a girl who falls in love with a star, a literal star that falls from the heavens and um and her voice i went back and forth with it being verse for a very long time i mean up until the last draft we were still switching it back and forth and at at this point she actually is mostly not in verse Mm -hmm. and then she sort of disintegrates into verse and that was really fun to write and um so the challenge was that was sort of figuring out you know she just kept going back and forth in and out of verse until we Mm -hmm. figured out what worked best um uh, Hannah, once I figured out that I wanted her story to sort of be told like in past tense um, and the others are more in the present tense and also to have her write in a journal, her voice just like came together instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like that was what it needed to kind of like center her and for me to be able to put her on the page in the way that she needed to be. Um, and Sarah was actually the most challenging because she didn't have like a... Um, What's the word? You know, kind of like a a, a gimmick. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, like like Lavana has the verse and her voice is very flighty and uh, you know, um, and even not in verse her language and voice is very poetic and hannah is much more practical and you know and that also plays itself out on the page in the form of like journal entries where she records things right mm-hmm. and sarah was is sort of the one who's sort of finding herself and struggling with her identity a lot more and um i think that she's the one who's most like me which is funny that like that was the hardest one to write <laughs> isn't that always the truth right like Absolutely. it's hardest for us to figure out who we are mm-hmm. it's very easy to write other people who are not mm-hmm. like us you know um so I think she's the one I struggle with the most at the same time. The very first chapter of the book, like um, that, that's in her voice, like is the the one chapter I'd say from the entire book that like never changed. Mm-hmm. You know, so like I that was how I started the book and that stayed. Yeah. So
1: did you find yourself having to kind of get in a specific mindset? Because I feel like, and and I'll get to some of the stuff in a little bit, but like you have a career in literature, like people may very well know your name as a literary agent before they discover that you also have written now, you know, two published books, well, published by the time people hear this. Um, and so I think, I, I think you probably almost certainly have a much more, much sharper understanding of the craft that goes into writing because anyone thinks they can, they can tell a story, but you know, you're talking about three different voices here that are extremely different. And like you said, even one is it, doesn't start in a verse, but it kind of fades into verse. And there's like a delicate hand that you have to have when you're creating those those aspects. So, like when you get into writing a specific voice for one of these three, like did you have to kind of get in the right mindset, or did you find yourself writing like several chapters at a time of each sister? I guess like how do you go about it? because they are, while the 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 flow of the story works beautifully, they are very very defined voices in the three of them so was there something you had to do specifically as as the writer
0: so when I was first drafting the original story was actually written in six voices and and (laughs) this is something that you hear a lot of people say about like book two they're like yes it's written in 27 voices and one of them is the voice of the broom (laughs) um you know and so it was sort of written in pres in the present time and and the past and I was playing with kind of like the legacy that we have in our that that passes through generations in our bones and like Mm -hmm. what would those sisters magic look like watered down to the present day like what if their their ancestors still had you know remnants of this magic in their bones kind of thing and and so when I first wrote it I was just writing scenes like from all the different sisters and all the different perspectives as they came to me and then the whole present part got cut and we just kept it like strictly historical mm-hmm. um so I mean for me it works best writing like a scene as it comes to me and so um I was skipping around a lot when I was drafting um mm-hmm. but then in the revision process actually I have no idea how I could have written this book without Scribner, because <laughs> um sisters I don't think I discovered Scrivener yet and sisters Mm -hmm. I was going back and forth but it was two voices it's just really different than three or six you know um and so I needed the ability to be able to move things around and also to be able to like select one voice and read through it one time one at a time for um for flow and for consistency Mm -hmm. and so so definitely not in the drafting, but in the revision, it was yeah. really critical to be able to take each voice and only work on that voice and then like reintegrate it with the others and then make sure that that still worked, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so so that was sort of on a craft level, how I went about it. Like I had a lot of fun with the drafting, but the revision was very, very much getting into the headspace and, and honing in on that voice and, and making sure there was flow. Um, In terms of like being a literary agent and also an author, it's funny because I'm a very editorial agent. Like I Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time. I work very hard with my authors on there. I don't set anything out until I feel like I can stand behind every line in the text. And I love it. And the authors who, you know, we work best together, the ones who appreciate that kind of collaboration. And very often when I'm going through a manuscript, and I know exactly what to do, how to fix it. You know, I have like, I know how to edit and my clients are always like, how do you know how to just like streamline? Yeah. And then I'm always like, why is it so easy for me to do it for other people? But <laughs> yeah. so hard for me to do it for myself. And, um, and so that's funny. Like, that's definitely something that well, I-, I struggle
1: with. Do you think that it's because you're a little bit removed from the story? Because I feel like that's something that I know I'm, I'm working on my own manuscript personally, and I know that's something I will struggle with when I am ready to pitch it to literary agents. I know I'm going to have to put my ego aside and, and be like, oh, no, my initial gut reaction probably isn't the best way to convey this story. Like, do you think maybe it's because of the fact that you can see a story that a, a you know future author is presenting to you and saying like oh here's where you're trying I think this is where you're trying to get to and here's a better way to do it as opposed to being so in the weeds with your own draft like do you think it's maybe that difference between the two
0: yeah yeah absolutely and sometimes I wish like I wish I could just like have a draft handed to me so that I could (laughs) fix it because I'm very good at fixing things it's like (laughs) the thing I struggle with is like writing them myself and then fixing them myself um, but I'm very good at fixing other people's work. So um, so yeah, it's definitely a struggle. Like even right now, I have um a fully drafted novel in verse that I've written that's YA, that's purely historical, no magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really excited about it. And um, I wrote the first draft and I wrote a second draft and sent it to critique partners, and they gave me unbelievable notes. Like some mm-hmm. of them are, you know, friends of mine who who've written published novels in verse, they're good at what they do, and like, and then I revised it and I sent it to my agent. And then he's like, this is great, but you need to like change the following million things. And, (laughs) (laughs) and I haven't touched it since I'm like, okay, that's going to take me a few months. And I have a book coming out now, you know, so like, I'll get back to it, but it's so funny because that's something that I could do for one of my clients, like Mm -hmm. in a week. And like, why can't I just get my act together and like do what needs to be done? Yeah. It's, you know, I definitely wear two hats and they're two very different hats, um, all the things that regular authors go through, I go through too, like imposter syndrome and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, second book syndrome (laughs) and, um, you know, uh, uh, just struggling with edits and struggling with like everything that a regular author struggles with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got an edge, but that also didn't help me get published. Like it took me 10 years to sell my first book and and me being in the industry was not the thing that tipped the, the scales at all. I still had to do all the same work that everybody else, you know, in the trenches has to do.
1: And I'm so glad you you bring that up because I, I do think that's something that there's this, there is like a common misconception with, if you're in the literary world, like people always say, like, I'll even tell like my mom, like about the book that I'm working on. And should be like, well, I mean, this is just gonna be so great, like when you complete your draft because you have so many contacts in the literary world. I'm like, that's great. Yeah, but they're not gonna be like, well, we really like Adam, so we're gonna do him a favor and help him get this published. I'm like, they're either gonna say it's good on its merits or it's not good on its merits. They're not gonna be like, Adam's a great guy, and he interviewed a lot of our authors, so we should do him a favor. That's just not how it works. Like, like he said, it people are still going to take your your drafts and your pitches at. Pays value. They're not going to say like, "Oh, well, Rena's had a we've, we've had a ton of experience with her. Like, she's an incredible human being." Like, they do need to make money at the end of the day too. It
0: still <laughs> has to be a good book, right? You
1: know? Yeah. So, but from a literary agent standpoint, what is something you think potential authors should maybe understand that that don't like? Because I feel like there's a lot of either common misconceptions or things that people just don't know once they are working on something. Is there something that you come across the most as like a misunderstanding from people even if they do mean well
0: in terms of um just publishing in general
1: yeah yeah, it could just be publishing in general it could be like when people are sending you pitches and they're doing something horrifically wrong or just like like something that I don't think people understand when they write their first draft and they start pitching a literary agent even if they know to do that part first like even if they sign with an agent, it's still going to be a long tail until they get yeah. actually published. Like just something that you think people maybe don't understand about this world that we can kind of live and breathe
0: I mean, I think that the one thing about publishing is that it's extremely unpredictable, mm-hmm. you know um, and that. I don't know, at least as an agent, like every project I take on, I'm like, this is amazing. And it's going to sell for a million dollars. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes the things that I expect to sell will take a year or even two years to sell. Yeah. Um, and sometimes things that I think are like good and solid and this will for sure sell, will sell in an auction of 10 publishers. And I'm mm-hmm. like, Wow. Okay, like that. I, I mean, I expected it, but I didn't expect it. You know. Um. And so, it's publishing is very unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Just the way, what, just when you think things are going to go a certain way, they go another way. And I think that it's really important to always be, um, to be gracious, to be kind. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, also to know that it is a just it is creative field, and it is a very unpredictable field. And that's the way it is with all the creative arts. But somehow, I don't know. I think people think that like publishing. Is not the same as like movie making or you know the art world, and it really yeah. is like it's a very subjective industry. It's a very unpredictable industry, and um and you've got to like be re- have really thick skin and be really open to sort of like rolling with the punches. Not mm-hmm. every author gets what every other author gets. Not every person's public path to publication is the same as any other person's. Yeah, and none of that, in the end, matters because if any publisher had knew how to make a bestseller then we wouldn't need the whole system that we have, querying agents, all that, you know? It's that nobody knows, no matter how much money they pay for a book and no matter how much um, publicity and marketing goes into a book, books take off for their own reasons that have like very often not that much to do with all of the stuff that goes around that. I've had books that sold for, you know, very, very um you know, low quote unquote Mm -hmm. advances that became New York Times bestsellers. And I have books that sold for six figure deals that that didn't hit the list. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot of unpredictability. There's also a lot of waiting, Mm -hmm. a lot of waiting. It takes a lot of patience.
1: Yeah, I I know everyone you know, everyone wants to be Tomy me and like get that book dealer when you're 20 or 22 or one, whatever she was. But then there's people like right now, the number one book on the New York Times Sowers, is for YA is Angeline Bully's Firekeeper's Daughter. And she's in her fifties and this is her debut book. And it's like, there's no right path. And I do, that's something that I know can be frustrating for people, but I also do think it's really amazing. Um, but speaking of publishing books and, and getting back to your two books specifically, um, you, you know, you mentioned the <laughs> I was talking about the the, the the next book that you had kind of written and you you're holding off to the side now and you, you specifically said you're like no magic in that one which I thought was really funny because you do have you know that your first two books um they have this beautiful like interweaving of family and folklore and magic and tradition which I feel like I have to say like Tevia every time I say the word tradition like I feel like it's a tradition tradition <laughs> yeah um like what is it about like interweaving kind of those three specific things like family and and folklore and and that tradition of magic and stuff like that intrigues you so much in in creating your stories
0: yeah well like the other projects i'm working on all have magic in them (laughs) i just happened to do this other thing Uh which i think i needed i think i needed to like have this other shiny thing that was like just so different um Mm -hmm. while i was struggling through edits and working on on the light of the midnight stars um so, but definitely, like the future books I have planned, which you know, hopefully there'll be news about one of them soon, um, are, are along the same lines as Sisters and, and Light of the Midnight Stars. Um, I, you know, I think that I, I talk about Light of the Midnight Stars like it's a book about telling stories. It's a story within a story within a story, right? Yeah. There's a there, the whole there's a framework of a story that you sort of find out who is sort of narrating the whole story only in the end, and then. There is a book within a book, like mm-hmm. this, the book of the Solomonars, where there's quotes taken from. There was a, a, I have a friend, a dear friend who's um very learned. He's like a rabbi, and my husband's sort of a rabbi too, but he's my husband doesn't like call himself rabbi. He's this <laughs> friend of ours, mine does, you know. Yeah. So like, um, I would call him a lot. He's, he has a big podcast, and he does like a lot of stuff about Jewish history, and mm-hmm. so every once in a while I'd comment and I'd be like okay so what if I wrote my own holy book like can I can I do that (laughs) okay you know like is that okay um and so that's kind of what the book of the Solomonars was it's based on a lot of other like contemporaneous texts but like I sort of wrote and like I called it the book of Rena until a better title you know um but that was really fun anyway so it's a story there's a book within a book there's a story within the story and then there's the sisters themselves who sort of like you start the story and then halfway through the book, not to give anything away, but something pivots, you know, and the story sort of starts all over again. It does. And, and then each of the sisters sort of have the stories that they tell uh, that are sort of different ways in which they're trying to figure out themselves and tell their story. And mm-hmm. so and I think that, you know, I also love telling stories. Um, I think that we all choose the type of stories that we tell in our daily lives, like even just like. Oh my God, you'll never believe what happened to me yesterday. I went to the store and blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah. like you, you always have a narrative and like what your perspective is of that story, maybe something completely different for the other person mm-hmm. um, who was at that store with you. And, um, and so I think that like, that's what fairy tales are like. They're they're They, have they morph through the generations and every person that retells a story, whether it be what happened yesterday when I went to the mall or the um, let me retell my version of the boys with golden stars.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We're constantly as people, as human beings, like we're storytellers. Yeah, And, um, and so like, I just think it's something that's so innate to like who we are as human beings to tell stories. We don't even realize how many stories we tell on a daily basis, just yeah. even recounting what happened yesterday. And, um, and so the confluence of, of that you know, I think my father always told me tales growing up, like my mother would read me from Andrew Lang's fairy tale books. And my dad would, um, was always telling stories about like the wise men of chelm or different Hasidic tales and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I think that story is sort of the way in which I understand my reality. And I'm constantly telling myself stories in my mm-hmm. head. Um, and, um, the mixture of that and history is obvious. I mean, I, I, I have a, degree, like my my master's is in history. I love history. I think yeah. that the past is fascinating. I'm always, you know, intrigued by um all sorts of like historical detail, falling down all sorts of research rabbit holes. Um but at the same time, uh, the fantasy comes in because there is, was such a lack of fantasy in um you know in in the Jewish space. Yeah. You know, um my my book is a lot more than that. It's not just a Jewish book, right? But yeah. Um, I, as, as a reader, as a kid who loved fantasies, been reading fantasy books my whole life, I never got to see myself represented in the pages of a fantasy novel. You know, I never saw a Jewish teen, let alone an Orthodox Jewish female protagonist being the heroine of her own fairy tale. Yeah. And so that's something that was really important to me. And the only way for me to do that, for me, was to be like, okay, well, let's look at the history. Let's look at the tradition. Let's look at the mythology where does this come from and how do I make it real how do I find the kernels in my in history in the books that enable me to take the leap right like so in sisters it was taking the leap from like a man who danced a story about a man who danced in a bear cloak
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: became a bear to 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 being like okay well he you know I'm sorry let me start that again
1: yeah absolutely
0: in sisters of the winter wood it was the story of a man who danced in a bear cloak to save um, a fellow Jew to to take the leap, well, what if he became a bear,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: right? In Light of the Midnight Stars, it was more the space of like, okay, well, there's this King Solomon and he supposedly had all these magical abilities. And there are these like mythological Solomonars that were this kind of anti-Semitic trope and they existed. And some people say that they were red Jews or Khazars or mountain Jews like, what happens if we, what if there really was a thing like that? Like, what if people really could have these abilities that King Solomon once had? And what would that look like? You know, so it's always taking a jumping off point, and being like, but what if I make it magic? Um, Yeah, that was a very long winded.
1: No, no, that was great. And honestly, I was laughing. The only reason. I, did, I wanted to interrupt you like six times because I had like six different questions and things to talk about, but I also didn't want to like, like I didn't want to interrupt your chain of thought. But like, I think first off, I think you're absolutely right about we in our as a just as like an animal, human beings are our storytellers. That's how you know. Even you look back at you know generations and millennia of people who you know oral storytelling was the way that we passed time because no matter what story you're telling you know, in the odyssey is a reason that we all still talk about it and think about it because it's been passed on and every version can be slightly different. Um, I'm literally reading a book right now called a thousand, I think it's called a thousand ships. I'm going to make sure. Yeah. By um, Natalie Haynes. And it's the story of basically like the, it's like the Hellenic tales, but it's told by all the women through the, the story and it's a completely different perspective And you know, growing up and like you said, hearing stories from your father, like those were he was telling you stories or reading you stories, and you were getting one perspective. But then, like you said, you're you're able to take that and be like, Well, there's no one who looks or sounds or studies religion like me in these stories, and I would really like to see that. Um, you're I was laughing because you said you're like, it's not like just quote unquote, just a Jewish book. I my father's side of, of my family is Jewish, and so like I Take a source of pride time, I'm like, oh wait, there's like Jewish folklore kind of in this, but, um, but no, I mean, I, I do think there's something really, there's an endless treasure trove of stories that can that are ripe just to have like a little bit of different aspects add to them. Like I always think of there's a little bit of like Goblin Market in your first book, and but it's a completely different version of it, and so I, I do think kind of exactly what you said, like it's even if it's just. Hey, talking to my dad and he tells me for like 45 minutes about his run that he went on yesterday like even if I ran with him it's he's going to see it a different way than I did and that is storytelling that's how okay. we, how we understand
0: time. our world you exactly. know
1: yeah yeah uh, no, go I, ahead I was just
0: going to say like definitely like inserting women into the story is very much what I tried to do with Sisters of the Winter Wood and it's very much what I tried to do in Light of the Midnight Stars the problem is is that Throughout most of history, men were the ones who wrote down the stories mm-hmm. like women were either incapable, illiterate, even if they were illiterate, they didn't have access to the pen and ink. They didn't have, um, you know, not even just access, like physical access, just like access, like because they were women. And that was just the way society was set up. I mean, 50 years ago, that was the case, you know, and right. so sometimes the only way that we have, even as historians, I feel to tell the stories of these women is to invent them. Like mm-hmm. there is no, uh, there's literally no other way. Yeah. And, um, and I think that one of the reasons I'm always like, I'm always writing about sisters isn't really because I have a sister and I have this amazing relationship with her. I do mm-hmm. have a sister, you know, and I've had like different relationships with her over the years. When I was younger, I looked up to her and now um, you know, she's a mother and a, a grown woman and as am I, and we lead very different lives and we're still close and we're still sisters, you know, but our relationship has changed from her being more like a mother figure to me, which she was for so many years. Cause she was like so much older than I was, um, to now being more like, you know, contemporaries, even though we're still just as many years apart, we're more in the same stage of life. And, you know, so, but, but it's not that. For me, it's because the more sisters I have, the more women I'm inserting into the story. Mm -hmm. And we need that. Like, there's no other way for for us to kind of reclaim that history except to invent it with as much historical research as
1: possible. But, you know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something else that I I really, I'm curious about because you, I love that you put so much, you know, time and care and into like you said you're kind of creating a religion sort of but it's very it's very jewish um like the the religion and the um you know and all the different things that they do you know they they celebrate hanukkah and they you know they make challah and like there's there's a there's a lot of you know it's but it's there's also like this mix of like Judaism. And, and like you said, there's obviously magic. I mean, there's literal, there's literal dragons. Like if there's, that's, that's, not something that dragons. that's not something that I know of, at least in our world that exists for now. Um, But there's also that you also connect it to kind of like astrology, especially with one of the sisters. How did you go about maybe crafting that? Or is that something that you've always had an interest in? I mean, I I'm a huge nerd about like looking up at the stars and like kind of having that like wonderment like are those people Mm -hmm. are those souls what is that like, is that Mm -hmm. something that's always fascinated you and then how do you kind of connect that to religion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love, I love looking at the stars. I've always the person, wherever we are, I'll be like, look at the stars, you know, um, you know, especially when we're out camping or out in the middle of the ocean at night. Like there's this is beach that I, we love going camping at up, up north here in Israel um, on the which like the Sea of Galilee, um, which is like our freshwater sea. Um, because it's (laughs) fresh water, but also the beach, like you can camp literally on the shore and then you can just go into the water in the middle of the night. And I love going in, laying on my back just like looking up at the stars. Um, And there's also like a big like Pleiades um, meteor shower near near here. I mean, I'm sure it's like all over the world, but um, you can see it really well, not too far from my house. And so like very often we'll take a blanket um, when it's that time of year and go out and like with the kids, um, yeah, so we, my family, we, we love going out and seeing like meteor showers. We, I love going out. Um, I'm always like the person who's like, look at the stars um, <laughs> everywhere I go. <laughs> um, I'm an Aries. I'm very into, I definitely <laughs> believe in astrology. Um, no, but like seriously, it, it's a, it's a thing in my life. And, and it, it, like, is, so Judaism, you're not supposed to really believe in like the power of the stars and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like not really something, but at the same time, there is a lot of cosmology in the religion. Like we set the holidays, according to um, the, the like the, the lunar calendar. Right. And like we um, every month, like it used to be in, in the olden times, like every month was decreed when people saw the new moon, like, and it would be shouted from like the mountaintops and stuff like mm-hmm. that. like. And, um, and we do have um, even the Hebrew months, the Hebrew months are are actually like, based on like the names of the Zodiac or maybe the Zodiac is based on like the Hebrew names, right? Like, so there is, it is in our culture. It's just not something you're supposed to like from a religious perspective, like stake your life on it. It's like, you can know it's there and there is a power and there's a recognition that it exists, but like, you know, you're not supposed to um, make major life decisions based on like star (laughs) charts and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, because it is so much a part of of the religion, and it really, it really, really is, um, there's a lot of interesting like anecdotes, like in the Talmud and in the Midrash and in different um, Jewish books, and that was something that I sort of connected to. First of all, King Solomon himself was said to like have had a power to change the chart of the stars, or you know, mm-hmm. to read the future in the stars, and so that was like one thing that I sort of ra- grabbed onto. Um, I also grabbed onto like the, there's a Romanian very famous um romanian poem which is um based on like this luciferol which was uh it, it's a story about a girl who falls in love with a fallen a, a man who falls from the sky with a star um uh-huh. and there's like sort of dragon mythology like mixed into that romanian dragon mythology is Mayu and Bailari and stuff like that and um and so like i was just fascinated by the idea you know that the most commonly known star or you know in in um in the fantasy world, I think, at least is Neil Gaiman's Stardust, right? There's uh-huh. a girl who falls, there's a star. And so I was like, well, what if what if we did that differently? What if it was a man who fell from the sky, right? And then I found this Romanian tale, poem, and also fairy tale, that there were these kind of like siren-like, you know, or um, what's the word for it? Um, succubi, right? Oh, yeah. Or incubi. <laughs> Who were men who fell from the sky as stars and would like enchant young maidens and then they would like grow sick from the wanting of these men who then never returned and would wander the streets and you know forlorn looking up at the stars at the sky and so like combining all those things together was really really fun. I looked specifically in Jewish sources many of which were like only in Hebrew um, to try to find the different places where the stars are mentioned or the stars are discussed and 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 that was sort of also, I I mined those resources in order to Uh like bring them into my book. There's a place in the book where I talk about like, if, um, if the Milky Way wasn't in a certain position, and the Scorpio, the scorpion of the skies didn't, you know, have the stars exactly aligned the way it was, then, you know, certain things wouldn't happen in the world. Like, that's actually like a quote from the Talmud. Like, it's, it it Uh exists. It's, and and so I was like, okay, well, what does that look like in a fantasy novel? You know, Uh if like, you know and um other things like uh there's talk about um you know how things line up in in terms of like end of days there mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk about like some kind of fury dragons in the skies or fury serpents in the heavens like you know a lot of the the later prophets have these treatises on like end of days and and there's very often like cosmology there and dr- fury dragons in the skies that are are they stars, yeah. a constellation, right? You know, all that kind of stuff. So, so I find it first in the book and then I make it fantasy in my novel. You know, like I, I look for things that I don't have to invent.
1: Yeah. Well, you even have like, I'm so glad that you pointed this out. Like there, you kind of tell people in the book, like the reason that Jewish people say Mazel Tov is like the stars align for you. Like there's definitely precedent to like, intertwine these things like that's very very important And actually speaking of that something that you know one other thing I want to ask you about I love that you inserted a lot of kind of like Hebrew terms and phrases and verbiage into the book and then you have a dictionary at the end but don't put it like you know a lot of times I feel like people will say something in the text of a story and then like they'll immediately like in parentheses or in a comma like tell you what it is in English I love that you don't do that. I love that it's just like, this is an aspect of this story. (laughs) I provided all this for you at the end. Go, you can use this dictionary. Like, how important was it for you to have that flow and like keep these, you know, words and phrases and things in the original language for what it actually means for for readers who obviously, you know, many of them might not know what it is, you know, as they're reading it for the first time.
0: Yeah, so that was something I did in Sisters of the Winterwood as well. In Sisters yeah. of the Winterwood, it was really important to me. Like I wanted to put Yiddish into a fairy tale novel. And that I was like, you know, I I deliberately did it in this book, because <laughs> there were a lot of mixed reviews about Sisters of the Winterwood in terms of that specifically. Mm-hmm. Of course, I never read good readers, <laughs> Yeah, no, but... who what author would, right? <laughs> um, but <laughs> In the different reviews that I happen to glance upon mm-hmm. here and there, um, mm-hmm. people uh, people either loved it or hated it. And so in this book, I was like, wow, this is great. Because I was writing about a Jewish world pre-Yiddish. This, is, this book is pre-Yiddish. And that's a little like mind fucky because you're kind of like, wait, I'm writing about like a shtetl and I'm writing about like Jewish history and this kind of construct that we are familiar with from like Fiddler on the Roof and popular culture, except there was no Yiddish. Like, yeah. That's crazy to think about. And so what did they have? They had local language.
1: And- okay. um, My um, giving me angry, angry situations okay. here. Yeah, we're good, keep going.
0: They had local language
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then they had like uh, um, Hebrew, but there was no Yiddish in, in, in 13, 1400s. And so that was also like really interesting to play with. So I was like, oh great, this book, is gonna have a lot less Yiddish words and it's not going to have that much of a glossary maybe I won't even need one and then I'm like wow there's like six pages of Hebrew words in this book <laughs> how did that happen but um I think it's because so much of like the internal core of like Judaism but specifically Orthodox Judaism involves a lot of Hebrew words in like our daily lives even till today mm-hmm. like the way in which Um, my people who, who are Jewish communicate and specifically, even more specifically people who are Orthodox Jewish communicate, they're they're, like my sentences involve Hebrew words. Almost every sentence I say internally. And, um, Mm -hmm. and it gets even more, you know, when you watch shows like Shtisel or, you know, when you go into environments where there's like a yeshiva environment, there's even a kind of like, we talk about it as like yeshivish, like like, (laughs) part, part Yiddish part English, part Hebrew, some mm-hmm. kind of like bastardization of all of that. But I think that it's something that communities do, like forget Judaism for a minute. I think communities have their own language that they use to, to in order to, especially minority communities, in order to communicate with each other and also in times of trouble and distress, right? Like and, in order to, um, it's like code words, it's safe language. Uh-huh. It's something we can speak between us that nobody else understands. And I don't think you can separate like an authentic Jewish story from that. And so even though I really thought that this book wasn't going to have it, it had it. But I also think that it's most authentic to Judaism um, for me not to explain things because you're, you're tight first person in the head of this family and the heads of these sisters. And that's, they wouldn't stop to explain things when they're talking amongst themselves and to each other. And so it's not authentic to do so. Um, But I know that there are definitely mixed feelings about it. I know that some people, you know, will still complain that there are a lot of people in this (laughs) book
1: it is what it is (laughs) yeah but Um, I don't don't know I I guess like I think it's more natural the way that you did it because I guess like growing up um I grew up in a a very um Latina heavy Latino Latinx community um like the majority of my city is Puerto Rican and I have a lot of friends who are Puerto Rican and I would go over their homes and you know many of their parents or their grandparents were from Puerto Rico and like, I would hear their conversations and some of it was in English and, but most of it wasn't. And like, I would just catch like little words and they wouldn't stop to explain it to me. That's just how, it's how they would speak. And then they would That's look at me and they're, speak? yeah, it's just how it is. I think it's, I don't know. I think it's more natural that way to me. And also as I said, like my father said our my family is Jewish. So, you know, I have like a special place. I like to smile when I see little words and like little, like phrases and things. So I, I love it. So my Goodreads review that you will definitely not see is <laughs> definitely extremely not. positive of it. Yeah. Um, um
0: all right. I actually agree. Like I grew up in Miami beach, Florida and like, yeah, like there, there was a, there was a, there was a station growing up. I don't even know if it's still there, but like there were radio stations that were like in Spanglish mm-hmm. and there were like, there was a TV channel in Spanglish it was like, yo soy el next presidente was like the ad for it. I remember like, um, but man. that's how I grew up. Like all my friends, like spoke the, uh, really strong combinations of Spanish and English. Mm-hmm. And like, you just, and if you grew up in Miami, like you just flow with it. You understand it because yeah. it's just all around you. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that like language is a way that different communities communicate internally. And, and I think that to erase that is
1: inauthentic. Yeah. Uh, And along those lines, I have one last question for you is like, what do you hope readers take away from the light of midnight stars?
0: So we definitely talked about story, you know, and Mm -hmm. storytelling and, and that we are always free to like rewrite our own stories. And we are always free to tell the stories of our lives, whether it be Mm -hmm. small or big, you know, in whatever way that we um, choose, you know, we're also free to stop in the middle of our lives and be like, I'm going to start this story again. Uh-huh. you know, I'm going to take on a new name and I'm going to say once upon a time, there was a person who is me, who is now different. And, you know, that's something that I think happens naturally, but I think it's also okay to call it by name and to like, understand that, like as storytelling people and, you know, um, as humans, like that is what we do. And that's what we are, or we have a right to do and an ability to do. And, um, And and so that's definitely one thing that I wanted people to take from it, um, from the book. I also, the the issue of naming is something that I I really played with a lot in the book. You know, the way the sisters sort of change their names is something that has a lot of like historical trauma in it, um, especially for like Jewish communities. Uh there's so many. every single person, every single Jew I know has a story about somebody in their family who changed their name somewhere. Yeah. you know, was Goldenberg and they took now they call themselves Golden or you know, was um, uh, a million different, you uh-huh. know sometimes like Cohen or Levi or some of the only Jewish names that people didn't change because like like the way I play with Solomon R, you know that it's something that's sort of like in your in your bones and your blood. Um, there are people today who sort of trace their lineage back to like the Levites or, or the the Kohanim, like the high priests, and and still even genetically there's been like markers people have been able to find, you know, that shows that they're like of that. So that was sort of how I played with the Solomon art, mm-hmm. and and so I think that like the the concept of naming, naming yourself, renaming yourself, um, it, it's it's a mixture of like reclaiming and reownership, but it's also very often has a lot of trauma attached to it. And, um, and so that was something else that, that was really important to me, um, in, in the story and in the writing of it. Yeah. I think those were like, my I, uh, two now,
1: I, that, that's absolutely perfect. <laughs> I mean, I have been uncle Hiram who goes by, who's always his whole life gone by uncle high. He's just like, he's just like, he goes by high. He's like, it wasn't worth having conversations with people who would immediately judge me for being Jewish and yeah yeah. and that's in uh, Cleveland Heights here which is like a very heavily Jewish populated section of Ohio but yeah I I completely get it the book is so so fantastic I love getting to talk with you hopefully we won't have to wait like three years to see each other again but thank you so much for (laughs) joining me today (laughs) no (laughs)
0: pressure Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com.